0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, Conversations About Impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose. Impact is where your unique best self meets the world and contributes to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Tara Swart. Tara is a neuroscientist, physician, leadership coach, and award-winning and best-selling author. She works with leaders all over the world to help them achieve mental resilience and peak brain performance, improving their ability to manage stress, regulate emotions, and retain information. She's the author of the book, The Source: The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain. Welcome to the podcast, Tara. I'm just delighted to have you here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation.
0: Yeah, me too. I, I so enjoyed reading your book. And um, there's some things that popped up in the book that I really wanted to ask about and and uh hopefully we can kind of get into a, a conversation around those. So one of the things that Uh, you wrote very early in the book was we stopped being and started doing a lot of things existing on a kind of autopilot that we could not turn off. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I I think we're uh, in this world of of thinking about how we want to be in the world and how we want to show up. Our own consciousness is so important. So could you please speak to that?
1: Yeah, thank you for starting there. It's a it's a really long backstory, which I guess is the history of humanity, where if you think about it, these days, you know, I think it's a great thing that mindfulness has become a, a more common practice for everyone. But I do get asked sometimes, why do we have to do mindfulness? You know, we didn't do mindfulness when we lived in the cave. And really having reflected on that, I thought about the fact that We used to walk around barefoot in nature. We used to look at the stars in the sky at night because we could actually see them, which if you live in a city, you often can't. And, you know, we sat around the fire with our families and spent quality time together and we slept in keeping with the light-dark cycle outside. We have changed that so much that we can be switched on for 24 hours a day now if we want to. And we have massively valued, I would argue, overvalued logic and technicality in society and devalued intuition, empathy, creativity. So from a neuroscience point of view, all that sort of, you know, philosophizing brings me to think about the major ways that we think in work and in life, which are about, as I mentioned, our emotions, our intuition, and our creativity, but also our logic, our decision-making, our motivation, our resilience. And our connection to our bodies. And it does just feel very much like we're so active and focused that the benefits of being present, being mindful, being empathic have been downgraded to a point where it's actually damaging us. And that's, you know, that's where I want to bring the neuroscience up to make that compelling argument for reconnecting to those things as well as the other good things that we're doing so well as the modern human.
0: Well, you make such a good point about um, having been in connection with nature, having been in connection with ourselves and each other much more, living in a communal environment, for example. Those are all things that have completely changed. And one of the things I was really surprised that, that you wrote about in the book is that logic is massively overrated. And it surprised me a little bit hearing that coming from someone who's a a neuroscientist and a, and a physician. I, I, my own background's in science. So I, you know, as, as you know, we, we were educated in that, uh, that realm of, of logic and, and of, uh, of honoring that, uh, above a lot of other things. So can, can you speak a bit to the, the dangers of logic, which you also talk about in the book?
1: Yeah. So I think the, the dangers of logic are us not accepting that all of our logic is biased by emotion. Um, So if we understand more about how the brain works and how information flows around the brain, then you can actually see on, you know, with scanning technology that emotion, sorry, information that reaches the logical parts of the brain, the logical cortex and pathways has already passed through the emotional pathways of the brain. So every single decision that we make is biased by emotion. But there are still lots of people who say, I might be emotional if I'm at home with my kids or if I'm watching or playing sport, but I'm not emotional at work. Now, I've been saying for a long time that not only is that factually incorrect, but it's also quite a dangerous and just neglectful assumption to make because emotion is so important that if we choose to ignore it, then we're choosing you know, to ignore approximately 20% of the data that's available to us from our brain. Hmm. and so what i what i imagine is that your listeners are all logical and technical enough that we've all been to school you know some of us have been to university or been on graduate training programs that we've learnt those skills really well and and actually the things like looking out for interpersonal problems rather than process problems at work um, understanding when maybe the work-life balance has stretched itself too far to nurture our you know, important relationships at home, those are really really key skills that we haven't actually valued and I think have probably contributed to a lot of the problems that we're experiencing in life now. So yes you know I have probably too many degrees, more than I need, <laughs> um, but I would say that for example medical degree being a doctor obviously you have to know enough to be a good doctor but actually accessing your intuition your judgment having empathy for what people are going through um, is is just as important but it's not taught you know you're lucky if you catch on to that and you add it into your toolkit right equally being a neuroscientist you know doesn't necessarily require a massive amount of empathy but what it's shown me through the scanning technology is how important things like empathy and intuition and creativity are and it was easy to say that they weren't a real thing before but now the science is so compelling for things like that and mindfulness that we've already discussed that i i just feel really passionately about telling everyone that these things are real and they're really important <laughs>
0: Yeah. One of the things you talk about quite a lot in the book is, is intuition and what are some ways we can cultivate that? How can you actively, because as, as you said, we, it isn't necessarily something we've been encouraged to learn in school and through the normal pathways of, of what we call education. So how do you, how do you really nurture that?
1: Sure. And I think, you know, whilst you're still younger you perhaps don't has, have as many examples of life experience to draw on to actually build up confidence in your intuition. So, I do think it gets easier with age. But having said that, it's not a passive process. Um, I personally think that journaling is the best way to raise from non-conscious to conscious the mm. patterns of behaviour that you're indulging in that may be holding you back, or perhaps could be, you know, real strengths that you can play to. So. A classic example of that is if you come to a dilemma and there's one answer that logic gives you, but a different answer that comes from your intuition or your gut feeling, then in a low risk scenario, try going with your intuition and journaling what happens and seeing what works, what doesn't, you know, what what happens in different scenarios where you go with either logic or intuition. And then building up your confidence in trying that in more and more complex and important decision-making. It's actually the reading back over the journal that for me was really eye-opening. Seeing myself, whether I trusted or didn't trust my intuition over and over again, getting the same outcome when I actually wanted a different outcome. And and just really seeing that in my own handwriting with my own thought process was huge. And I just want to add in that, like I said, I've, I've sort of been arguing for a while that these things are more important than we've given credit to. I think that now with the rise of AI and machine learning, they are more important than ever. Because if you think about the capabilities in the brain, well, a machine can make a decision millions, if not billions of times faster than us. But these qualities like creativity, empathy and intuition, they're still areas that we can excel in. And that's why I now think it's easier to talk about them um, and the importance of them and actually convince people that it's something worth working on
0: mm I love that um, creativity, empathy, and intuition are areas we can still excel in, even in the face of AI and and things like that that are taking over really largely in essence the functions of logic that
1: exactly uh, just, yeah
0: yeah yeah well um I, I that's that's a great way to i mean journaling is is such a good way to to improve your Awareness and are there other ways that we can switch off that autopilot that you talk about? That that way of kind of existing in a in a um, just doing mode of where we're not really thinking about what yeah. we're doing and yeah,
1: there are. But to be honest, for that one, there isn't really a shortcut. I I quite love giving <laughs> some shortcuts from neuroscience, and there are a few actually. But yeah, with this, you know, accessing your intuition moving from doing to being it's I would say it's a much more sophisticated task in the brain so for example when people say how long does it take to change a habit well the answer is that it really depends what the habit is so if it's I'd like to be going to the gym three times a week you can probably do that really quickly if you just put your mind to it because it's something you know how to do there's a lot of Um, things in place around you to allow that to happen. If it's things like empathy, mental resilience, accessing your intuition, I would say that those things are up there with the complexity of learning a new language. So um, because they're exactly the same physiological process in the brain of its neuroplasticity, which is building a new pathway or making new connections in your brain, a more complex task like that would take about six months. It would take lots of repetition it's easier if you're guided by a you know teacher like with language lessons. Um, and it's about having goals and making sure that you you stick to them you know so mm-hmm. yeah, these are there are definitely things that you can do, but I would say it's the long and hard work of of focusing attention on opportunities for trying out this new behavior on practicing it as much as possible, um, and being held accountable to, to actually using your intuition to inform your decision-making.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for talking about that. Um, one of the things you said in the book, too, is that the way we think determines our life. And I, I'd like to hear what, what that means to you. What do you mean when you say that? And um, It's something that has been written a fair bit about and some people have scoffed at and uh, but it's becoming a more accepted kind of way of thinking i'd love to hear your perspective on that
1: absolutely it's the age old sort of you know your thoughts define what happens in your life but this (laughs) is really sort of with the science behind it so um there's one of the strongest gearings of the brain is known as loss aversion and that is it's a survival um gearing it's it means that we're more likely to do things to avoid losing something than we are to gaining a reward, and actually the psychological effect of an equivalent loss is two to two point five times as strong on the brain as the equivalent reward and the easiest mm. um, example of that to give you is if you if you walked to work and you found fifty dollars on the sidewalk you were you could pick it up, you could keep it or decide to give it to charity and Pretty much by the time you got to work you probably would have forgotten that you pocketed fifty dollars that morning if you realized by the time you got to work that you had dropped fifty dollars out of your pocket you'd probably still be thinking about that by the time you got home and probably got to bed <laughs> that evening so right. although right. it's the same amount and it's you know relatively speaking nothing life-changing the equivalent loss has a much more powerful effect on us than the same reward and so. Any sort of little criticism or comment that you might take the wrong way during the day has a much more powerful effect on us. And equally, our own negative self-talk has a hugely powerful effect on us. And so we need to be very proactive about replacing negative thoughts with a positive affirmation, because if you think, oh, I'll never get that promotion, or just if you think glass half empty, basically, then you're not going to make the required efforts to get the reward or overturn that negative thinking. So it's much more likely that you won't go for a promotion or you, you won't get lots of great things because you don't expect them. Whereas if you think abundantly, which is something I've talked about in the book, and it's a very deliberate practice, it's changing the way that you think, then you know it seems like a coincidence, but it's not a coincidence that – your brain becomes primed to seize opportunities that would otherwise have passed you by. So although I I agree with you that when people say the way you think changes your life, it can absolutely easily be passed off as just a positive statement that doesn't have much backing behind it. But if you, if you actually think about how it works in the brain and if you actually try it yourself, you immediately see that it's the perspectives and filters through which we view the world, which are ingrained from our childhood and you know, throughout our entire life that actually dictate how we see the world. You know, if you were abused or traumatized as a child, of course you view the world as an unsafe place. Mm-hmm. If you decide that there are lots of opportunities that you can go for and that if you don't get something, then you learn something from it. But actually because you've tried more, you you do get more positive um, rewards, then it actually changes your risk profile. That's That's a physiological process in the brain.
0: Mm. Ah, that's fascinating. Well, and I think also you, it's not even that opportunities um, don't present themselves to you. You don't notice them if you don't have a particular focus in a, in an area of something that you might want, for example. If you immediately dismiss it and say, well, I couldn't have that anyway, then you don't even notice opportunities.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd love to come back to that abundance aspect that you mentioned, but I, I just to take this point a little further. I something you also said in the book is that as adults we have to consciously direct ourselves to grow and develop as people, and I was really intrigued by that in terms of well, what does that mean for leadership? What does that mean for people in organizations or entrepreneurs leading an organization, for example? How do you then take that? conscious how do do you consciously direct that and and uh, really uh, so that it informs how you're leading
1: because the brain is a very energy-hungry organ it will use the pathways what we call the default pathways which are the things that we're really good at and the preferences that we have for how we do things because that's more energy efficient so what we have to do is actually expose ourselves to new learning, to change, to different things, taking on different points of view um, so that we can develop, because otherwise the default will always be to stay in our comfort zone. Also, right. given what we know now about neuroplasticity, which is that the brain actively molds and shapes itself in response to everything we experience from naught to 25, which is a lot later than we used to think. We used to think that by 18, our personalities and our brains were quite set. Mm -hmm. But we do know that from 25 to 65, you actually have to actively do things to keep your brain flexible or what in neuroscience we call plastic. So as a leader, I think in times of crisis, you should rely on your strengths because that's going to be more decisive, more critical at the time. But when we have bandwidth, when things are going quite well, when projects are, you know, deadlines aren't looming, We can actually try new and different things and then just increase our toolkit for thinking because the more we try these little things and become more accustomed to them, the more agile our brain is, which means that we're more able to move between logic, intuition, empathy and creativity. So what tends to happen is, you know, you may say I'm highly logical, but I'm good at accessing my intuition if I need to. I may say... Mm. I rely mostly on my empathy and I can really think outside of the box if I need to. But imagine if you were able to you know, use the two brain pathways that I'm mostly using as well, or indeed, if you collaborated with me because you realize that we've got complementary skills, just how much more you can get out of the leadership when we're being more agile with our brains than sticking to the one or two pathways that we've developed over time.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a really thoughtful consideration of that, of how that affects leadership. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, to, to come back to the what you mentioned about abundance and an abundance mindset, I, something you talk about in the book is, is um, and this, I guess, relates to the leadership question too, but uh, just to quote something you wrote, striving for transformation in a personal sense requires unflinching honesty about our own thinking and a willingness to change our mind. So how do you change your mind to an abundance mindset? Can you talk talk about what, what does an abundance mindset mean and, and how can you shift to that because it has so many benefits?
1: Yeah, so it's related to the loss aversion gearing that we were talking about just earlier. And it's about being so conscious of that, that you're able to override it should you choose to. So if you go into a scenario that's new or threatening, or just uncertain in any way, you're bound to default to loss aversion. So it's about training yourself over time to know how to push yourself beyond that. And it starts with really small things again, that hark back to, you know, sort of um, popular psychology that we've read about for a long time, like a gratitude list. Mm -hmm. Now, in my research, I, you know, I knew that that was something that people benefit from, but I wanted to look at the science behind it. So, and every exercise in the book, I have practiced myself for several years to really like see what benefits they held for my own brain. And I've used them with my coaching clients who are leaders, as you know. And the thing about a gratitude list is that after a while, it gets a bit boring to write the same thing down over and over again.
0: (laughs) So you start to
1: think, you know, what else could I put on this list? I can't just write the same, you know, 10 things every day. So it evolves from, because you look around you and you think, okay, I'm grateful for my home, my family, um, you know, maybe for the, the job, the friends that you have. And after a while you just go a little bit deeper and it's similar to intuition where you just, you just go deeper. You listen to your body more and you start to think, well, I'm grateful for my creativity or I'm grateful for my resilience. And you start to think about concepts that you have inside you rather than things that you have in the outside world. Mm. And what that tells you is that the world is a place that has many opportunities and that if somebody else does well, it doesn't mean that you have to do badly, that that we're not in competition to survive. Because that's one of the things that goes with the being versus doing, you know, we used to live in very collaborative community, communities, but then it became more about competing to survive. So again, it's about overriding that wiring that's in our brains and thinking, well, especially as entrepreneurs that, you know, if, if I do well, I may create more opportunities for other people or vice versa, rather than if somebody else starts up that business that I wanted to, it means that I can't. So it's really about building up positive thinking in your your brain until that becomes natural for you. So a really important part of what we've learned from brain scanning is that we're not asking people to do things that feel unnatural. We're not asking you to to fake positive thoughts. We're asking you to cultivate them until they become the natural pathway in your brain. So that when presented with a challenge, you think, why not? Rather than, oh, I definitely don't want to do that because if it fails, these bad things would happen. (laughs)
0: yeah absolutely yeah it's really about moving into uh, the realm of discomfort and it's not uh, you mentioned a couple of the the benefits of doing that it's also about impact which is how can you uh, have more impact it takes money sometimes it takes a willingness to see opportunities and it takes Uh, a mindset of contribution that how can I add something to this scenario so I I love the the way that you uh, have talked about how do you develop thinking in that realm and and moving towards that so I think it applies to a lot of things it's great
1: you've actually just reminded me of one of the exercises in the book because you specifically said about you know maybe it takes money um, which is that you list every single barrier to you achieving the thing that you want to. And very often it's, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. It might go wrong. um, I don't have the right people. And then you, next to that list, you make a, a list of the opposite statement, even if it couldn't possibly be true. So you say, I have unlimited financial resources. There are opportunities everywhere, et cetera. And then in the third column, you write what you do differently now that the second column is true, even if it's not. So for example, if I said, Ursula, you've now got unlimited financial resources to start the new business that you want to, what do I see you doing differently from tomorrow? Mm. What's really charming about this exercise, and I've done this with banks and other corporates, is that most of the things on the final list are things that you can start doing anyway. You're just not doing them because you don't believe them to be true.
0: Right, Um, yeah.
1: You know, Some of the things might be things that would have to wait till you got the funding or a certain opportunity arose, but most of them are not. They're just things that you're choosing not to do because, you know, we say these things to ourselves. I don't have enough money. There aren't enough opportunities, but sometimes it's not actually about that. It's because we have to change to do the thing that we want to do next, but we don't want to make that change.
0: Yeah. I love that. The, the, um, um, really thinking about it in terms of of being expansive and just allowing yourself to think about yes it's possible yes this is even as an exercise it it kind of opens the door to as you said the things that you actually can do in the present
1: absolutely and i i also sort of suggest in keeping with the neuroplasticity and you know cultivating things like abundance that even if you just start doing one or two tiny little things differently, it has a cumulative effect on your brain. And then, you know, next thing you know, you think, well, actually I could do that third thing as well. Or what also happens is that once you start trying these things, suddenly a new opportunity presents itself. And obviously that's no coincidence, but it's just that you become more open to it. So, you know, I often say change 10 things by 1% rather than trying to change one big thing, because that's too (laughs) daunting
0: that is great Uh, change ten things by one percent yeah we always kind of want to go for the big dramatic big shift or or something really huge and then it starts to feel intimidating which is paralyzing and um, yeah so that's that's great Um, the uh, something you referred to is about uh, fear of failure, and entrepreneurs are are almost by definition no, no strangers to failure. And refa- reframing failure to not yet, which you talk about in the book, is is really uh, touches on resilience and feeling worthy of abundance. Tell us more about that.
1: I think it really brings up the question about what is failure, and I think again, going back to how we started this conversation, that our schooling systems, our our working practices are very concrete about what failure is. Mm -hmm. It is something that we have to change our mind about in itself, which is that if something doesn't work out, even if it's as concrete as I didn't get a job that I applied for, how do you actually know that's a failure? Because in five years' time, you might look back and say it was the best thing that ever happened because then I started my own business. So I have found through my understanding of neuroscience that when something doesn't work out in the way that I really wished it to at this moment, the quicker that I can move on from that and, and try the next thing or just learn from it, the more likely I am to create a positive opportunity in the near future. Sometimes it's not the near future. So patience is also very much part of this. But it's really about, like I said, what is failure? Is not getting a certain job failure? Is a relationship ending failure or is it the beginning of something new? I I think a whole paradigm shift around what failure is, is very key to becoming more comfortable with these perceived failures and then trying to always learn something and moving on to the next opportunity.
0: (laughs) I think that's uh, such an important concept, that paradigm shift around failure and what it means, how we think about it. It's so crucially important. Yeah. Well, one of the things you talk about in the book as well is the benefits of aimlessly lounging around. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's something that is almost counter to the, the cultural norm that we're oh, I'm so busy, like that mm. is lauded as something that is almost a badge of honor. Mm. And uh, I mean, I think we're seeing more and more the, the, the difficulties in that. But what do you see as the, um, the benefits of, of daydreaming and puttering and, and things like that?
1: I love that word puttering. And it makes me smile because when I had to change the work on changing the manuscript of the book from UK English to US English, I had to change pottering to puttering, so I yeah, I learned that there's a subtle difference. Um, (laughs) so there's lots of evidence from neuroscience that, um, that allowing your mind to wander, but you know, not sort of there's a difference between that and drifting off into a distracted kind of daydream. So when that happens and it's not purposeful, that actually indicates sort of some issues with focusing. But when you say, okay. going to take some time just to think or i'm going to go for a mindful walk this has huge benefits i i also want to relate this back to the the last issue that we were discussing which is where we talk about something like failure and say oh you know as long as you learn something and you move on to the next opportunity i have not always been comfortable with that Mm. in fact i've had you know many many ups and downs with that many you know sort of low points where i thought i'd failed at something and that was the end of the world and it's taken years to really learn and but make it feel authentic that okay this is just something i have to learn from and move on and equally i feel really passionate about when people ask me how how i am or what i'm doing not saying oh i'm terribly busy because because that is you know that it, it sounds like that's what you should say because it's really important for everyone to be busy and you know, I really try to demonstrate the benefits of having downtime and, you know, for my clients, because often they're very, very busy people who work long hours, who travel excessively. And so to actually be able to say, you see that I travel, you see that I work hard, but I actually really value those mindful walks, that time to think, um, the time just you know just not working and doing something silly or simple that's important to me I think is is so valuable because unfortunately and I'm sure you see this too I see way too many people burning out either having heart attacks or nervous breakdowns and mm. you know that's the side that doesn't get talked about and so I think talking about the mindful time the downtime is is the healthy part of making sure that as a you know, as a sort of species, really, that we don't reach burnout.
0: Yeah, well, I think talking about it as well gives it more um, credence, gives it more credibility, um, as opposed to always talking about how you can pack every moment of every day with some form of activity. And it really goes back to something that we started with, which is this autopilot thing of action being so uh, crucially valued as as um, uh, i've been listening to some things lately that talk more about y- y creating some space for inspiration and intuition to come in and you can't do that if you're busy every moment
1: no and actually it's because in the brain there are several different networks um and sub networks but the two sort of bookends are the highly switched on task focused network and the other side of the other side of the coin is what's called the default network. And that's the mind wandering network. If you're highly switched on and task focused all the time, the blood flow in your brain goes to that network and it's, it moves resources away from other networks in the brain. The default or mind wandering network actually allows blood flow with the resources like glucose and oxygen to go to the parts of the brain that allow creative thinking to flourish. So actually, if you want step changes and innovation, that's the, that's the reason to allow this mind wandering. It's not just so that you don't burn out because a lot of people still feel they're invincible and they won't be the one that burns out, so they'll keep going. <laughs> but I right. think you know, for entrepreneurs and leaders, allowing that opportunity to unleash creative thinking is actually so important, again, especially with the rise of AI and machine learning.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, something you talk about in the book Almost entirely is the brain. You're a neuroscientist, of course, and it's understandable. And and uh, and of psych, you had a psychiatric practice as well. But what about the research around the gut and the heart in determining and influencing our emotional state?
1: Yeah, so fascinating. And you know, both fields that are developing all the time. So this actually relates back to something that you said about how do we become comfortable with you know being very sort of honest about our own thinking and some flaws that may be there. Well, as neuroscientists, we've had to be very, very open about that, because there have been, you, know, things that we believed from research at the time, like the right left brain lateralization, um, that once we got more and more sophisticated scanning technologies we've had to come out as a community of people and say, actually, you know what we told you about how the brain works, that's not how it is anymore. <laughs>
0: <Seeing that laughs> Never mind.
1: It, yeah. Um, so I think actually as a group of people, we've we've had to learn that quite a lot because the research has just moved on so quickly and so amazingly and, and shown lots of new and different things about the, how um, the brain actually works. So this interaction that we know more about now, but we certainly don't know everything about in terms of, The gut and the brain, particularly, is is an area of growing interest for for everyone, but I've been looking at it specifically. So, we've known for a long time that there's a neuronal connection between the gut and, and the brain, particularly the limbic part of the brain, which is the more emotional intuitive systems. We know that the vagus nerve connects the gut and the brain, and we always Thought Well, for a long time, we thought that that was a one way connection, but we now know that it works in both directions. And very Mm -hmm. recently there's been new research that shows a three way communication between the gut, the brain and the gut microbiome, which are the bacteria that live in our gut. Mm -hmm. So apart from the direct neuronal connection between the gut and the brain, there's actually chemical signaling between the gut bacteria and the gut and the gut bacteria and the brain. And this gut bacteria is actually also connected to our bone marrow and our immune systems. It's called psychoneuroendocrinology. I mean, it's an amazingly exciting field. We don't know much about it yet, as I said, but even by the time of writing the book, I had included studies that show if you take a good quality probiotic for one month, you have less negative thinking. Wow. Yeah. So there's this, you know, as yet not fully explored amazing connection between the gut and the brain that is, is going in more directions than we ever imagined before.
0: Mm.
1: We know less about, um, well, in a way we know the basics, but, but we ha- there's less that we're aware of that could be possible around the heart and the nervous system. We know that the nervous system in the body, so excluding the brain and the spinal cord, is called the autonomic nervous system, and it has a sympathetic and a parasympathetic arm. Parasympathetic is to do with rest and relaxation and you know digestion, and it's a calm state. Sympathetic is the fight, flight, fight sort of state. And we know that the nerves around the heart indicate whether the heart should pump more frequently or more strongly, depending on whether we need to run or relax. So, you know, everything is, it's just, so much more intimately connected than we really gave credence to before. And I'm convinced that there's going to be more and more research that shows about the interconnections and that the, the more we know about them, the more we can commit to our health in new and different ways. But I would say of the things that you've asked specifically about, the, the gut bacteria area of research is probably the most exciting one at the moment.
0: Mm. That is really fascinating. And I remember years and years ago, I was uh, working for a pharmaceutical company and and Helicobacter pylori, H. pylori, was kind of the, the thing of the moment where people were noticing all sorts of effects of people that had that gut bacterium in their system and how it might even influence the heart and cardiac conditions. And this was like a revelation at the time. So it's really exciting to hear that there's even more knowledge and information this is my my science geek coming out here but it's the <laughs> it's fascinating to hear about the interconnection of everything which which we know intuitively in a way in terms of human relationships but it's fascinating to see the back and forth reflection of that even in physiological processes
1: absolutely i'm i'm with you there with the science geek feeling <laughs>
0: that's great well Tara it's been such a great conversation and I want to I want to wrap it up with really asking you some questions about your own um, experiences with impact and how that's influenced you and your career and life Um, so are you are you ready for the rapid round of three questions
1: I'm as ready as I'll ever be
0: (laughs) okay great so the first one is what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact
1: it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, I'm a neuroscientist and, and the sort of clinical practice and everything that I've had. So I would say from being a doctor in clinical practice, from, from applying neuroscience to leadership and my coaching work, I would actually say that being kind is the cherry on the icing on the cake in terms of impact. Mm. We, you know, when we ask someone, how are you? We don't really mean it. You expect somebody to say, I'm fine. If they say, well, actually, my marriage is crumbling and the children are suffering and I don't know if I can hold down my job anymore, you think, whoa, I did not actually want to, you know, get into that conversation. So I think really paying attention, listening without interrupting and and actually caring is it's invaluable.
0: Yeah, I love that. Thank you for saying that, because it's true. We get into this reflexive. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm also fine. move on." So, yeah. Well, um, what's the one thing that you've consistently done that you think has contributed to your success and impact the most?
1: Well, um, there's a few things that jumped to mind there. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I've had, you know, ups and downs with my own confidence because I've made some, you know, for example, my big career change was one where I went from being a very senior doctor to being, you know, absolutely a a coach with no business experience and no network I would say that believing that I could do things was was underneath it all but I would say that the more important twist on that is being authentic so I wasn't Mm. afraid to ask for help when I felt like I was at my you know lowest point and I hope I've demonstrated today that you know, I'm not somebody that's saying I, you know, sleep five hours a night and I work 12 hours a day. And, <laughs> you know, I just think I just don't. And I'm, so, you know, so busy. I don't want to be part of that conversation. I want to be part of the conversation that's real and authentic and that where I can connect to real people who, you know, don't just want that superficial conversation.
0: Mm. Ah, that's great. Well, the last question is, what's one insight or piece of advice you'd share with someone who's asking themselves, how can I positively affect my own environment and the larger world? How can I have impact? What would you say?
1: Okay. So obviously there are, you know, so many things we can do from small to very big things to actually, you know, have a direct impact on the world. But I would boil it down to something that is a real theme that I see with my coaching clients who are, you know, very successful, well-educated, knowledgeable people. And that is to tell the truth. So I think that you can't really have impact even in your own life if you're not honest with yourself and you definitely can't have impact on one other person or society if you're not being honest. And, And I don't mean, you know, sort of, about people like telling lies i just mean more about really connecting to to your truth to your meaning and purpose and to something that's in keeping with harmony and positivity in the world we we can't really go against that it either comes out as a physical illness or a mental illness or some kind of issue i've i've just seen that so many times with my coaching clients and in my own life so i think somehow sticking to the truth, whatever that means for each person and in each scenario is, I think, the best way to create impact. Because when people see that and feel that, it actually has an amazing impact.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree. And uh, Tara, I want to thank you for sharing your truth today and and for being so open in this conversation to exploring all kinds of different aspects of how we can have impact and, and uh, really rely on the um, the science of the brain and the secrets of the universe, as you see in the tagline of your book. So that was, that's been great to have this conversation with you.
1: Thank you. I just love the roads that you led me down. And um, yeah, I just trusted <laughs> that I would be able to answer your questions.
0: Yes, and you did. It was great. So if, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you?
1: Well, I'm very active on social media. So I'm on twitter at tara swart and on instagram at dr tara swart with a dr for the doctor um, and the book is available on amazon and at all major book retailers um, the source the secrets of the universe the science of the brain
0: great well tara thank you again for being here and thank you for the impact you're having with your work in the world
1: and same to you thank you so much for having me, Ursula.
0: Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.